So over the course of the retreat so far, I've been highlighting the theme of balance, which is woven throughout the Buddha's teachings. And I mentioned how the Buddha himself in his own life went from one extreme to the other before he realized the need for a more balanced approach. So in the very first discourse that the Buddha gave after his awakening, he framed his teachings in terms of the middle way. And the middle way is that balance between self-indulgence on one hand and self-mortification on the other. And self-indulgence is that tendency I spoke of last night to take refuge in sense pleasures, to try to make ourselves continuously comfortable by by manipulating the world out there in order to make ourselves happy. And last night I talked about how this strategy is at best only ever partly successful and it keeps us dependent on external conditions rather than helping us to strengthen the inner qualities that would help us to meet life's challenges with more ease. Self-mortification, on the other hand, originally referred to the ascetic practices that were common in the Buddha's day. These were spiritual practices that involved various ways of subduing the body. For example, taking vows to never sit down or sleeping only on a bed of nails, or severely restricting how much food one ate. So I don't think we're in too much danger of that one here. (laughs) And those kinds of practices, they're not part of our culture anymore, fortunately. But Joseph Goldstein has pointed out that what is quite common is a kind of psychological self-torture, self-mortification, So there seems to be something in our social conditioning these days that makes many people very hard on themselves. Many of us have strong tendencies towards feelings of inadequacy and unworthiness and even self-loathing. And we can consciously or unconsciously bring these underlying tendencies to our meditation practice too. So as I've been saying, it can become yet another self-improvement project that's driven by self-judgment and anxiety and fear. So this is one reason why I found this metaphor of the two wings to awakening so helpful, both in my own practice and in working with students. These two wings being wisdom and compassion. Wisdom, the ability to see clearly, to develop insight, and compassion, the willingness to turn towards suffering, to meet it with kindness, and where possible, to help it to release. So perhaps because we're in the insight tradition, the wisdom wing of the practice has tended to get a lot more emphasis, and less attention has been paid to the compassion wing. And I've already spoken about wisdom Uh, quite a bit already, so I'd like to focus more on the compassion wing tonight in the service of helping us find the balance between these two. Because most of us have a bias towards one wing or the other, and also in the bigger arc of our practice, we can see times where one gets strengthened uh, ahead of the other one. 
So it's worth checking to look at our practice from time to time and to see how is the balance between wisdom and compassion. When I've done that in my own practice with the benefit of hindsight, I can see now, I can recognize phases where one of the one or two of the wings got ahead of the other and that gap between them was uncomfortable and unsettling and discouraging until I recognized what had happened and was able to take steps to come back to balance. So because we're in the insight tradition, generally it seems more common for people to have the wisdom wing get ahead of the compassion wing. We put a lot of emphasis on seeing clearly. And at first, our insights tend to be on a more psychological level, a more personal level, as we start to recognize our individual habit patterns. And at this stage, it can feel like all of our so-called defilements are revealed to us in vibrant or even violent technicolor or extra high definition. And it's painful because as the old joke goes, self-knowledge is not necessarily good news. So there's this painful gap or as all of our defilements are revealed to us. And then as the practice deepens, we move beyond these psychological insights and we start to see the more universal insights seeing into the three universal characteristics of all experience. The truth that everything is impermanent, constantly changing, anicca. And because of that impermanence, it's unreliable, unstable, unsatisfactory, or dukkha. And there is no permanent or stable being, sense of self to whom all of this is happening, not self or anatta. And at first, experiencing these three characteristics more fully can be quite unsettling, even painful, because they challenge us to let go of very deeply held beliefs about who we are and how the world is. So when we encounter that unsettledness, we might need to consciously cultivate the compassion wing of the practice for a while to develop a more resilient heart-mind that can navigate these challenges with some degree of balance. And then on the other side of the picture, there can also be times when the compassion wing gets too far ahead of the wisdom wing. For example, when we do connect more deeply with the truth of dukkha, we might start to feel our own and others' pain so intensely that we get overwhelmed at times. We don't have to look very far to find this dukkha. Thanks to modern technology, it seems that all the misery of the world is pumped right into our own homes. And, on, and that's on top of all the dukkha that we're experiencing in our own lives and in our families and in our communities. So it's not surprising that at times we might fall into grief and despair. And at those times, we need to turn to the other wing of the practice to reconnect and strengthen wisdom. 
And we can do this by tuning into the other two universal characteristics of impermanence and non-self. Because when we see that everything is constantly changing, we understand that even dukkha comes and goes, and that none of this is personal, this is the truth of anatta, then it becomes possible to taste moments of deep freedom, even in the midst of difficulty. So bringing awareness to each of these two wings of wisdom and compassion and learning how to balance them is a big part of the art of this practice. So compassion then, as I said earlier, is the willingness to turn towards suffering, to meet it with kindness, and when possible, to help it to release. And the Pali word karuna, that is usually translated into English as compassion, literally it means, compassion literally means feeling with. So it's sometimes um, talked about as the heart that vibrates in response to another's pain or to our own pain. But for most people, uh, particularly people who don't have a meditation practice, this is not the usual way we relate to pain. It's totally counterintuitive to move towards suffering instead of away from it. And even people on a spiritual path can think, wait a minute, this isn't what I signed up for. I thought my spiritual practice was supposed to help me get over pain. Suffering hurts, so why would I want to get closer to it? Well, one reason is that, as I was exploring last night, inevitably there are times in life when pain and difficulties are inescapable. So the more we can practice meeting these relatively minor challenges now, the better uh, chance we have of being able to meet the bigger challenges with more compassion. So we're trying to build the compassion muscle now before we really need it. And so one analogy for compassion, uh, I sometimes think of it as like when we're swimming in the sea and uh, suddenly we recognize one of those monster waves is coming towards us. And our usual habit is to either try and run away from it or if we're in deep water, swim away from it, which usually ends up with us getting dumped. And so a more successful strategy is actually to turn and face the wave and then just before it hits, to dive into it. And yes, it's turbulent for a few minutes, but we usually come out the other side in much better shape. And it's a lot better than being slammed into the sand. So with that analogy, you might get a sense that it does take some courage to turn towards the difficulty and it takes presence of mind, mindfulness. But if we can face into our suffering instead of constantly running from it, with practice, our capacity to be with difficulties gets stronger and stronger. We're fortunate then that as with all of these qualities that are outlined in the Buddha's teachings, compassion is a quality that can be cultivated we can train in the development of it, specifically as one of the four Brahmavihara practices that I outlined briefly this afternoon. And as with the four foundations of mindfulness, the four Brahmaviharas are also 
progressive path of practice. So we start with metta, kindness or friendliness, goodwill, because this is the foundation that the other three qualities develop from. The other three being compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity. And when we have a strong base of metta, we can turn it towards pain and stress, distress, dukkha, and it naturally flowers as compassion. So to quote Longchen Rabjampa again, out of the soil of friendliness, metta, grows the beautiful bloom of compassion. Metta then is the soil from which the other heart qualities grow and develop. And seeing compassion as a beautiful bloom is inspiring. And yet, sadly, it seems that in mainstream society, compassion generally hasn't been valued very much. If we look at the state of the world right now, it can feel like we're in the midst of an epidemic of non-compassion. And we seem to be reaping the results of this undervaluing of, of compassion. And because of mainstream society's tendency towards perfectionism and idealism and competitiveness, for many of us, even the idea of cultivating compassion can seem quite foreign or even threatening. So quite often, when we first begin to try to develop compassion, what we come into direct contact with are the obstacles to it. But remembering that slogan, if it's in the way, it is the way, these same obstacles can become vehicles to develop compassion if we approach them in the right way. So I'd like to begin this exploration of compassion by talking about some of the challenges that we face when we try to develop it. And in my own experience, one of the first challenges came from being completely clueless about what compassion even was. It just wasn't in my consciousness at all. But I was fortunate because on the first 10-day Vipassana retreat that I sat, I was taught by teachers who did put equal emphasis on wisdom and compassion. But on that very first retreat, I literally didn't hear the word compassion at all in those 10 days. And it was only, I think, four or five months later when I went back to do a second retreat with those same teachers that I heard them talking about compassion over and over and over again. And on the second retreat, this was a total revelation. It felt like I'd been hit over the head by a sledgehammer something cracked open and I realized that compassion was what had been missing most of my life. It was mostly absent in my family. It was pretty much absent in the various communities that I grew up in. And for the most part, it was absent in the friends that I chose before I started on the Dharma path. But on the second retreat, I finally recognized what had been so painfully absent for all those years. And I was very excited by this discovery. So I went to the teachers and I thanked them for their radical new approach to the practice. And they laughed and they said that actually their teachings had been exactly the same as on the previous retreat. And it's true that these teachers um, do t still do, as far as I know, teach word for word identical retreats each time. 
and they have a book that outlines these teachings. And I so didn't believe them that I went and read the book <laughs> and there was compassion on every second page. So I offer that just as encouragement if you do feel that um, compassion is a struggle, that it is something that we can develop and grow and train in. So a second very common obstacle to experiencing compassion is fear. Because we are hardwired to avoid experiences that are painful and potentially life-threatening. So that it's not surprising that we might have a deep and instinctual fear of moving towards difficulty instead of away from it. And there's a caveat here. The reason that there are two wings to awakening is that compassion always needs to be supported by wisdom. So we need to cultivate clear seeing, insight, to know when our fear is just a knee-jerk reaction and when it's actually a wise fear that's keeping us out of genuine danger. So with practice and probably some degree of trial and error, we do learn to distinguish between genuine compassion and what's sometimes called idiot compassion or foolish compassion. And this is when we get caught in unhelpful patterns of trying to help everyone with everything all the time to our own detriment, which of course is harmful not only to us, but also potentially to the people we're trying to help if we're just reinforcing patterns of codependency or enabling. So we do need to take care to include ourselves in our compassion, otherwise it can do more harm than good. And particularly these days, at least in my experience, it seems like every day my email inbox is just filled with all kinds of requests for help from all kinds of worthy causes. It can be very hard to say no to all these different demands on our financial resources and our time and our energy. And those are just emails. We also often are experiencing live requests for help with almost the same frequency. So there's a quote in relation to this from Thomas Merton that I keep coming back to over and over again because it's such a powerful reminder of why at times we do need to say no. He says, there is, a pervasive, uh, there is a pervasive form of contemporary violence, and that is activism and overwork. The rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common form, of its innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of our activism neutralizes our work for peace. It destroys our own inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom which makes work fruitful. So that's a very powerful challenge to look and see if even as in our intention to be compassionate, we're undermining our inner wisdom and peace which would make that compassion more fruitful.
So we need wisdom then to help us know when to say no and when to say yes. And the point of this wisdom is not to make us immune from suffering. Somewhat paradoxically, it's actually to make us more vulnerable to it. Because unless we can open to the 10,000 sorrows of life, we won't be able to open to the 10,000 joys either. And part of the training in compassion is to learn to expand the spectrum of life experiences that we can open to, while also recognizing and honoring those times when it is appropriate to close the heart and to stay safe. So a few years ago, I was exploring this rhythm of letting the heart open and letting it close. And a vivid image came to mind of a sea anemone. I think uh, I've seen them here in, on the coast in New South Wales, but sea anemones are those small, brightly colored jelly-like things that live in rock pools. And I first uh, came across these when I was a, a child living in Scotland. And on family holidays, we'd go to the beach and explore the rock pools at low tide. And clinging to the sides of these rock pools were all kinds of multicolored sea creatures, mostly blobs of red and brown and orange jelly. And they had those amazing little translucent tentacles that swayed in the currents. And as a five-year-old, I was fascinated by them, particularly when my father showed me how you could reach down and gently touch the tentacles and they withdraw and leave this little blob of jelly, smooth jelly there. And I thought this was magic, and I, but I wanted to know why. Why do they do that? And later I found out that it was, that's how they stay safe. But when their tentacles are retracted, they can't feed. So at some point, they have to open the tentacles in order to take nourishment. And I thought, well, the heart is a little like that. When it's safe, it can't feed. So at times, we do need to allow that vulnerability that allows us to find nourishment through contact with others, through contact with the whole of life. So a few years ago, I was sharing this uh, uh, process in a weekend workshop. And one of the participants in the group very honestly said that every time he heard me use the word vulnerable, he just wanted to get down into his wombat hole. <laughs> and again, like the marsupial in the pouch metaphor, I think most of us can relate to that feeling of just wanting to get back in our wombat holes. So in case you need any more convincing, there is a growing body of social science research that's starting to recognize this link between our capacity for vulnerability and our capacity for happiness. Some of you might know of uh, Brene Brown, who's a professor of sociology at uh, Houston University. And she spent the last 10 years studying vulnerability, courage, authenticity, resilience, and shame. And although, as far as I know, she's not a meditator, the conclusions that she's come to do sound a lot like this process. So, and in an interview from a few years ago, she even quoted Pema Chodron, the Tibetan 
Buddhist nun I quoted the other day. So I'd like to read you just a short extract from the interview with Brene Brown. She says, if you have a Petri dish and you have shame in there, this pervasive feeling of not being good enough or not being whatever enough, thin enough or rich enough or popular enough, promoted enough or loved enough, this shame only needs three things to survive in this little Petri dish and actually to grow exponentially and to creep into every corner and crevice of your life. And those three things are secrecy, silence, and judgment. If you have the same amount of shame in a Petri dish and you douse it with some empathy, if you share your story with someone who can hear you and look back at you and say, you're not alone, shame dies. Pema Chodron defines compassion as knowing your darkness well enough that you can sit in the dark with others. And she goes on to say, this is why it's so ironic to me that people think that vulnerability is weakness when really letting ourselves fully soften into feeling is one of the most courageous things we can do. Emotions won't kill you, but not feeling them will. Our fear of emotion can absolutely kill us. Pain won't kill us, but numbing our pain kills people every single day. We're the most obese, in-debt, medicated, workaholic, addicted adults in human history. Pain won't kill you, but numbing the pain will kill people every minute of every day. So what's the antidote? To increase our tolerance for discomfort, we practice being uncomfortable. So, perhaps that sounds good, maybe not. <laughs> but I want to highlight, she points out that it's empathy that makes the difference. In her words, if you can share your story with someone who can hear you and look back at you and say you're not alone, this is what helps the shame to be released. And to me, what she's describing here is compassion. And in the context of a retreat, we can train in doing this for ourselves through what I think of as a process of befriending ourselves. And one powerful way of beginning this befriending is to practice relating to ourselves as we would a friend who's going through hard times. I think most of us have the capacity, at least sometimes, to just be with a friend who's going through difficulty in a way that's open and caring and compassionate. So if we can take this same compassion for another person and begin to offer it to we ourselves, then over time this practice can start to develop more easily. And eventually our hearts and minds become so imbued with this quality that we're able to offer it more fully and more genuinely to others too. So this process of befriending, whether it's of ourselves or others, is supported by the practice of listening, listening deeply, as we were practicing over the last couple of days in the introduction to relational practice. And listening itself, I see, is a practice of compassion because it's about tuning in, it's about attunement. 
listening to our own and others' experience with as much presence as possible. And later in the Buddhist tradition, this link between listening and compassion became more explicit in the image of Kuan Yin, the archetypal embodiment of compassion. So in the Mahayana tradition, Kuan Yin is sometimes referred to as she who hears the cries of the world. She who hears the cries of the world. And in the Zen tradition, it's said that she listens as if she had ears on every cell of her body, which is quite a striking image. And I find this image of listening very powerful because it requires us to settle back and to receive, to respond rather than to react. But this receptivity is not just passive. And out of that deep listening, we come to know an appropriate response. So some of you might know that in some images of Kuan Yin, she's shown in a particular posture that looks something like this. She has one side of her body in meditation and the other side is ready to spring into action. So you see this very powerful embodied balance between receptivity and responsiveness, very physically present. So again, that we see in that image how Kuan Yin is simultaneously attuned to her own inner world through meditation and to the outer world in her willingness to respond. And in my own Brahma Vihara practice, there was a significant turning point when I realized that these practices are not about somehow trying to manufacture metta or compassion or joy or equanimity. They're not trying to conjure up these different states. It's more about listening to what's already there, even if what's already there is very, very faint and seemingly far away. Because all of these qualities are actually the natural state of the heart and mind when it's unobscured by these adventitious or visiting defilements. And while it is true that at first these qualities may seem to be very far off or distant, as we learn to listen more carefully and deeply to our own hearts, we learn to recognize their signature tunes. So one analogy I use for this is the Hubble telescope, which in my understanding is a very highly sophisticated piece of machinery technology, which is constantly scanning the far reaches of the universe and recording images of life on something called a faint object camera. So we can turn this faint object camera into the deepest, darkest recesses of our own hearts and see if we can find any trace of life, even the slightest pulse of kindness or compassion, way, way in the distance. And as our antenna get more attuned to it, we learn how to recognize that signal, and just the recognition of it helps it to strengthen, helps to amplify it, bring it more directly into consciousness, and then to fill more of the heart. So the deep listening that Kuan Yin evokes includes deep listening to our own pain, equally with everyone else's. 
And I said the other day, I mentioned how sometimes when metta is presented uh, as shorthand for all of the Brahma-viharas, it can give us the wrong impression that metta is the default response to everything. But metta is not always the most appropriate response. So sometimes when I'm working with students, they'll say things like, I've been trying to do metta for my ex-partner. I've been in a custody battle with him for five years and I'm just not feeling it. Or the example I gave the other day, I've been practicing for two years and I still get angry with my 11-year-old. What's wrong with me? So rather than metta, at times compassion and particularly self-compassion might be a more appropriate response. So in the example of the partner in the custody battle, I might say, oh, have you tried practicing compassion? And they'll look blank. Why? And I said, well, it sounds like that's a painful and distressing situation. Have you thought of doing self-compassion? And a very common response is one of horror or just blank misunderstanding. Because the idea of offering compassion to ourselves for so many people is just so alien. And yet for me, self-compassion has been what I think of as a universal solvent that can dissolve pretty much any kind of stress, distress or dukkha. So to normalize, though, just how challenging self-compassion can be, I recently read a paper from a psychologist who's been working in this field for a few years. And he described some of the challenges that people face when they try to develop warmth and kindness towards themselves. He says, commonly, for high shame and self-critical people, particularly those from harsh backgrounds, The beginning of the experience of warmth and kindness can ignite considerable sadness and grief. Self-kindness can be viewed with suspicion as being soft, self-indulgent, or not deserved. This usually indicates a fear of developing or experiencing self-compassion. An exploration might reveal that the individual is afraid that if they give up self-criticism, they will become lazy, unpleasant, or unlovable. Some think that they will be punished for self-compassion by paying for it later or having it taken away. So to begin with, this work of cultivating self-compassion might, learning, might include learning how to relate very patiently to some very deep psychological conditioning. And in my experience of working with students and my own practice, sometimes it feels like we would rather do anything than turn attention towards our own distress with compassion. And so sometimes when I invite students to do this and they struggle, we uh, start to explore their resistance. And sometimes what they say is that they can't find phrases of self-compassion that feel authentic or genuine to them. So sometimes I'll invite them just to play and we'll work together to see if we can find some phrases that feel true and authentic. And sometimes those phrases might sound something like this. May I be willing 
at some point in the future to have the intention to move in the direction of beginning to cultivate some degree of compassion towards myself. So we might laugh, but even that amount of intention is a beginning and it's a very powerful starting point. And so just reciting those phrases three times every morning in a specific case started to shift that person's actually traumatic response to the idea of self-compassion. So we can be creative with the phrases that we use or not use because we don't have to use phrases at all. At times when we contact distress, simply stopping and recognizing the pain and perhaps even just briefly placing a hand on our heart, just that can be a very good start. Or taking a moment to stop and to breathe in and to breathe out with what's difficult, that too can be enough. And then once we have opened up some space around the pain, then we're in a much better position to begin to apply some of the other strategies that can help to strengthen compassion. And one powerful way to do this is to consciously bring to mind other people, other beings who might be experiencing pain similar to ours because this can act as an antidote to the self-centeredness that comes so quickly when we get identified with our own distress. So a simple, even slightly crude example of this from my own life, from a few years ago when I was on retreat at the Forest Refuge in Massachusetts, I'd been experiencing a chronic health condition, and just before the retreat I was prescribed a course of three very strong antibiotics to be taken together to deal with it. And I was warned that they could uh, cause quite intense nausea, but generally I, I don't easily get sick, so I thought, oh, I'll be fine. But from the very first day of taking them, from the moment I woke up in the morning until I went back to bed at night, I felt like I was just about to vomit. And a few times I did actually vomit. And I tried to keep meditating through all the discomfort, but pretty much all that was on my mind was when is this going to happen again and where's the nearest door or where's the nearest bucket? When am I going to throw up again? And it felt like after a few days, my whole world just shrank into me and my stomach. And that was pretty much all that was in my consciousness. And after a while, that self-centeredness started to feel pretty claustrophobic. So I decided to try to think about other people who might also be experiencing nausea in that moment. And I started thinking about all the pregnant women who were going through morning sickness, or all the sailors out at sea in storms who were suffering from seasickness, and all the people with cancer who were going through chemotherapy, perhaps not able to eat. And all the people with hangovers telling themselves never again. And I started to imagine millions of people all over the world vomiting together in unison. <laughs> and surprisingly, alongside the compassion, there started to be some real lightness, even happiness, at the idea of this solidarity in our nausea. So this is one very simple 
small example of how wisdom and compassion might support each other. Because when I was able to clearly see that my pain wasn't mine alone and that many others around the world were experiencing similar things, it helped me understand the truth of anatta, that nothing is personal and I'm not in control. And then with this wisdom, there came a new sense of lightness and openness so that there was almost literally more room in the heart and mind for the compassion to grow. So this afternoon I mentioned how cultivating the Brahma Viharas acts as a powerful protection to our hearts and minds, making them more resilient and less susceptible to the visiting defilements. And in the same way, when we're free from the defilements, we have a much greater capacity to see clearly. So in this way, as the practice progresses, wisdom and compassion start to merge and become inseparable. And later on in the Buddhist tradition, this fusion of wisdom and compassion became more explicit in the development of the bodhisattva ideal. The bodhisattva is a being who takes a vow to postpone their own freedom so that they can help others find their way out of suffering too. And whether or not this ideal resonates for us personally, we might still connect with the underlying understanding that all of this effort that we're making here is of benefit not only to we ourselves, but to everyone we come into contact with in our lives. And because of this habit of self-criticism that I mentioned earlier, it can be very easy to dismiss our own strengths and our own good qualities as insignificant. So as a way of challenging or even renouncing this kind of habit, at times it can be helpful to connect and to reconnect with the deeper purpose behind all this effort that we're making. So whether or not the bodhisattva's vow makes sense to us personally at this stage, turning towards our own deepest aspirations can be a powerful act of self-compassion. And the English Dharma teacher Rob Berbea has written about this in his book, Seeing That Frees. I found what he says quite inspiring. He says, often untapped, there is an equally great power accessible in heartfully connecting with our own deepest aspirations. Self-criticism tends to squash these aspirations and to obscure our connection with them. Conversely though, tuning into and sustaining a focus on the felt force of the aspirations within oneself in ways that allows them to gather strength and allows the being to open to that strength, can significantly undermine the dynamics of self-criticism. So we can use these aspirations that we uh, connected with on opening night and keep them front and center as often as you can bring them to mind as a way of helping to connect with our strengths and to release the habit of self-criticism. So in the same spirit of helping us to connect with our deepest aspirations, I'd like to close with a few of my favorite lines from the Bodhicharya Vatara by Shantideva. 
This is a Tibetan text that apparently His Holiness the Dalai Lama reads every day. And it's a whole book, so I'll just read a few lines that convey uh, the spirit of compassion very powerfully. May I be a protector to those without protection, a leader for those who journey, and a boat, a bridge, a passage for those desiring the further shore. May I be the doctor and the medicine, and may I be the nurse for all sick beings in the world until everyone is healed. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.